Hello and welcome to Navigating Nursing. I am your host, Laura Whitehead, a registered adult nurse, a critical care nurse, qualified lecturer and fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And I'm joined today by Ethel Changa, who is a clinical advisor for the National COVID-19 Vaccination Programme. Ethel, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, hi. Thanks very much, Laura. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm going to take you right back to the beginning. You trained at Lancaster University back in 2000. Were you always interested in nursing? Yeah, so I actually started my training in 1997 in Lancaster and qualified in 2000. And uh, the thing that actually gave me that aspiration to become a nurse is when I was growing up back home in Africa, um, my grandmother, my mother's mother came to live with us and she was quite elderly, frail and also had diabetes. So that's where I started to actually care for somebody else. And um, I actually found it quite rewarding and fulfilling. It was just the small things that really made a difference. Like for example, just helping her comb her hair or just helping her do her meals and making sure she's taking the right meals. And, and that became, began my passion in nursing. And so I thought, actually, I want to do this as a career. And actually, I think a lot of the time we look at the big things that nurses do, don't we, or care that we give or roles that we have. And I think sometimes we get caught up and forget the impact that those maybe little or small things to us, combing someone's hair, correct meal times and things like that, but the massive impact that has on the person. That's true. So you've done a lot of different roles through a variety of different leadership um, and management positions. One of your roles involved being a CBT therapist. Do you mind just explaining a little bit more information about that? Yeah, so obviously I trained as a nurse and then later on, some years later, I decided to do uh, cognitive behaviour therapy. So I did that at the uh, Reading University. And um, that involves actually, obviously, psychological interventions, looking at the mind, our thoughts, feelings and behaviours and how that influences uh, our perspectives. Um, so after having done that training, I then went on to become part of what's called, what, was, what is called the IAPT services. Um, improving access to psychological therapies and then had the privilege of actually leading the team, a new team of um, uh, therapists uh, as part of that role and stayed in that role for about 10 years. Oh wow and how did you find going on to lead a team? It was it was new to me, it was something that I hadn't um, been hadn't done before at such a scale because um, IAPT had just been introduced and I had just qualified as a CPT therapist. So naturally I just slipped into that leadership role um, to lead the trainees who then became um, trained themselves. And um, I, it was challenging, but I do, I did have quite a lot of support in terms of uh, mentoring support at that time. So that helped. And you've also been a chief nurse for core services. Do you mind just explaining to anyone listening the role of a chief nurse for core services and, and what part of your role was? Yes, so I was, so core services are obviously adult um, mental health services. Um, and I was a chief nurse at one of the provider NHS trusts. Um, looking after that portfolio and basically around quality and safety of our service users. And um, so those are the two main threads. So everything to do with quality. So are we, are we providing evidence-based interventions? How are we um, 
supporting recovery, sustainable recovery of our service users, and um, what, what, what our service users saying about the service that we're providing them, and just triangulating all that. So really around effectiveness and also service user experience. And then the other side was really around safety. So not just patient safety, but also staff safety. So looking at um, um, health safety and security of our staff, as well as compliance, CQC compliance and, and other regulatory compliance that we have to abide by. And um, as well as suicide prevention, and mortality. And I think staff safety is something that has really been highlighted in the last year that a lot of nurses maybe hasn't considered or it hasn't been at the forefront of their day-to-day -day job. And, um, and, and I think it's one of those things that um, we do have to bring to the forefront, especially now that we're in the COVID climate, because again, that is, we need to, we now more than ever need to really ensure that our staff are safe and we're providing them with the right equipment and resources to be able to do their jobs safely. So now that we've had too many people working from home, for example, um, it's really just even going as far as are they set up to be able to work in a safe way at home? Like, do they have the right chair? Do they have the right equipment? And also those that are coming into work and are on the front line, do they understand the PPE that they need to be wearing? Do they have the supplies um, ready for them? And yeah, it's, it's really, really become extremely important for us to ensure staff are safe in work. And you've then went on to be the Deputy Director of Safety and Standards. Did you find that that role was a natural progression from the Chief Nurse role you'd done previously? Somewhat it was because um, it involved the safety element of what I'd been doing before. So it was a little bit more of a, a, a bigger portfolio and um, it, it involved all the safety aspects that I've talked about already, which are really around um, compliance, CQC and um, uh, regulation, as well as health, safety and security, as well as looking a little bit more into um, our, our um, incidents. So looking at incidents within the organization and also um, governance around mortality and and what we're learning from, from deaths. And when COVID came, we had to really amplify how we were working because we really wanted to learn from um, the, un unfortunately we did lose some service users, but we, we needed to learn rapidly about what was it about them and the care that we were delivering um, that could have been different. And what were we learning from China, for example, and how were we triangulating that into our care for our patients? So yeah, so that was the portfolio really. And the learning at speed is something I think we've all noticed through guidance, literature, research. The past year, the amount of work and the scale of the work has been done. Well, it's just been immense, hasn't it? It has been. And I think we've had to really, more than ever before, had to learn to work in a very, very much of an integrated way, because now we realize that even though, like I'm a mental health nurse work and had been working for a mental health provider at the time, how we really need our physical health experts and nurses to work in alignment with our mental health services. And um, that was one of the things that actually helped us uh, tremendously in ensuring that our, save, our service users were getting the right care. 
and the right support. So there was that joint collaborative working with uh, our general nurses. And you're now the clinical advisor for the National COVID-19 vaccination programme. Do you mind just telling us about that role and how you've ended up in this position? Yes, um, so the role came about because um, obviously when the, when the programme started, um, they were sourcing nurses to come and join the programme. And it just naturally so happened that I was in the process of transitioning to join to go and join family members who actually don't live in the UK and 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 work outside the UK but then I ended up um, that being delayed due to COVID so um, meanwhile the job offer came and so I took up this job offer and it obviously it's it's um my current role at the moment or my portfolio is really leading on improvement across all the vaccination program across the whole program. So we've got different three delivery models. One is the local, the vaccination centers, and then we've got the primary care uh, networks, our GPs where the vaccine is, is also being um, um, administered. And then we've also got our hospital hubs. So it's just looking across all those three delivery models to see how we can um, incorporate improvement and how we can learn from the previous cohorts and triangulate that into the cohorts going forward. So I've been working as a vaccinator trainer and also as one of the hubs at uh, the Angel Business Design Centre, Middlesex University have been working with UCH on that and I think we've really seen how amazing it can be with the university and us as educators working with the NHS and that being a really collaborative partnership. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, Oh, since being in this program, I've just learned the value of coll collaboration and just coming together. And um, and and I think I've see, I see that every single day there's this sense of togetherness and a sense of we're all reaching for one one goal really, which is um, uh, to to get as many people vaccinated safely as possible. And I think as well we kind of. Interfessional learning and multidisciplinary team working has always been in the literature, hasn't it? And sessions at university and how do we develop students to, to learn to communicate? But I've really found through working at the hubs, you've got senior doctors, senior nurses, junior nurses, agency nurses, vaccinators, a whole variety of people that might have never worked together before that might not have ever come across each other in their kind of professional roles normally. And actually, the vaccination programme has given the opportunity for that development. It certainly has, and um, and I work day to day with the military, which I wouldn't I wouldn't have had um, been able to before, and I certainly learned a lot um, with regards to working on this program with the military because they've got a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of expertise, and um, they're learning from us and we're learning from them. So again, the collaboration has been excellent, and you know what. Um, as I go out and speak to different people, we've got some people who are working within our uh, within the vaccination sites who used to work um, in bars, for example, and they really understand, they really know how to do things like queue management, how to manage queues, and, it, and it's and it's just fascinating how all this this expertise is just. Um, comes out and actually is really supporting how we do things as part of this program. So yeah, really. I've had quite really. a few um, like people that normally work for BA, um, yeah, as, as kind of uh, 
one or something about hostesses and like her like people management and talking and her communication and the post-vaccine care was like absolutely phenomenal and I remember when she started and she was like oh I'm not going to be very good at this I'm not very good at injections and it's like that's obviously a key part of of that whole kind of episode of care but there's so much more that you bring to the table that that person isn't even recognizing as a skill exactly exactly there's just so much skill out there and and it's been fantastic absolutely fantastic just coming together um and bringing our different skills to the table to just you know make this program um work the way that it's working and we're doing you know we're all doing as a team collectively um a fantastic job within the vaccination program and so you've done quite a bit of kind of postgrad study. So you did your postgrad CBT course and also in a master's in nursing. I think doing master's and further study is becoming a lot more popular and a more commonplace um, within the NHS and outside for nurses. Was an MSc in nursing always something that you know that you wanted to do? To be honest with you, no, it wasn't. Um, it really wasn't. Um, I came to realise that as I developed and had gone up the ladder um, in terms of my role, my, my nursing career, I realized that I needed to have that level of qualification. So I actually went back to, to, back to study and um, to do my master's because I just felt I needed that. I needed to get back into some kind of education formal education so that's really the reason why have you got any advice for anyone that wants to undertake a master's I would say it's 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 um it's a challenging process but also quite rewarding and I think if you're like me who's going back into education after many years of of um of being out of formal study obviously bar the the, the small courses in between, um, it, it can be a little bit of a challenge to get into it. But I also realized more than ever that the universities are so equipped with support. And, um, and also the other thing is just be super organized. So really map out your time and be, you know, really understand how you're going to do your study and pace yourself rather than doing your assignment the night before, rather, rather pace yourself throughout the module on how often you're going to study, whether it's 30 minutes a day or an hour in the evening or whatever it is, but it must be consistent. I've, I've loved actually going through my master's because again, you get to meet other people on the course and then um, it kind of equips you with different ways of thinking and different ways of viewing things and it kind of updates you as well. So my advice would be, do it if it's something that's on your radar. Be organized as before you start. Maximize on the support that's offered at the university and enjoy the process. I think as well, I think the learning from different perspectives we get, I think sometimes in nursing, we get so set in our speciality, don't we? And what we're doing in our day to day that I found I've just started another course at, at university and it's working with people from all over in all different fields, not not just healthcare. And I've learned so much from their different perspectives and how they approach things that it would never have occurred to me to have that opinion or to look at something from that point of view. Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, there's something about really meeting other people, getting other people's views. And yeah, really, really fascinating. And the thing about it is once you kind of get that perspective, it kind of really helps you 
look at things in in different ways, certain ways, and kind of brings 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 um, a richness and thought as well. So you've done a lot of very senior roles in in a lot of leadership positions, and this series is all about leadership. And um, just talk about some of the challenges that you faced, and any kind of advice for anyone that you have that are also experiencing similar challenges within their roles currently. Yeah, so as a woman of colour, I have faced quite a lot of challenges. And uh, I think a little bit about my background made me blind to some of them. So I came into, obviously, into nursing, thinking, well, we're all in this because we all care. So because we care, it means we'll care for our patients and we'll care for each other. But, um, but obviously, as you go up the ladder, that's not the reality of what you face. So you, you find people who are passionate about what they do in terms of service delivery, but then the caring for each other starts to drop off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're someone of color who um, has risen up the ladder and you're sat in meetings or in forums where you're probably the only person who looks like you, it can be extremely challenging to even get your voice heard in a meeting or even to be acknowledged in a meeting or or for people to actually feel that your voice matters or needs to be heard. So I have experienced things like microaggressions and um, obviously I speak with an accent. I have had comments about, no, she can't do the presentation because she's got an accent and you know it's it's a very senior high profile you know very senior meeting and we need someone who's articulate and succinct and all the rest of it and without an accent and so they're those kind of things that are faced and um obviously because I was, you don't expect it, but when it happens to you, you think, oh my goodness, did that really happen? Did they really say that? And then obviously my name is Ethel, which isn't naturally an African, you wouldn't associate Ethel with an African girl. So when people are communicating with me on email and then when they meet me, they're like, what are you doing here? Are you in the right meeting? And it's like, oh no, it's me, Ethel. We were chatting on the on email God, you know, for cool. the last two weeks. And Obviously, the only difference is your skin color. So they're thinking they were chatting with Ethel, a different person who's not a black person. So, and obviously my surname doesn't really give it away that I am a black African or it doesn't give away the African uh, side of it, if you like. So, so people just don't just assume Ethel is an English person, is a white English person. So until they meet me and then they are surprised. So it made me realize that actually, is it about how I look that matters or what I'm bringing to the table that matters? And I think that was hard to deal with. It was hard to deal with that, really hard. But I am really thankful that, and I want to say to people who are listening to this, is one of the things that really helped me maneuver and really... um, over not overcome deal with the issues that I had to face was I got a mentor and um, my mentor was someone who I wanted a mentor who looked like me because I was so tired of speaking to other colleagues who I could speak to who were not like me and they would say of course she didn't mean that she was only kidding when she said oh are you really Ethel And I'm thinking, no, she wasn't kidding because she was expecting somebody else who didn't, you know, so I was tired of people brushing off what I was trying to explain to them in terms of how I felt. 
So I got someone who looked like me to be my mentor because all I needed was to be able to communicate what I'm going through to someone who would just listen. Yeah, you don't have to explain it because they understand, like that person would understand exactly when you told the initial story without having to then, I guess, almost justify and explain. Yeah, yeah. And, And so I got myself a mentor who just listened and she just provided that safe place. And that's all I wanted. And that's all I needed. And and mentoring is really about you getting into a room where you're able to openly, freely just talk about where you're at, but at the same time, arrive at your own solutions as well on what you want to do next. So during those mentoring sessions, I, um, I, I kind of gained some form of resilience. And, um, and then I thought to myself, actually, let me broaden my sphere and and start looking at start seeing what I could do how I could connect with people within the region rather than just in the local um, trust where I was so my mentor supported me in doing that so she put me forward for a regional role uh, which was which is um, the role that I'm still in now and 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 that was the turnaround so I got a mentor and so the mentor, sorry, my mentor was supportive in that. But the other thing that I want to mention, Nora, is um, I had a manager who was really good. I will never forget her, never, because she's been an extreme, she was an extremely positive part of my career. She was a white woman. And um, and, and I'm, I'm mentioning that intentionally because some people might think, oh, maybe, you know, you had a manager yeah. who really just, you know, um, insulated you and um, was like you. So she, no, she wasn't. She was, a, she was a white woman. But my goodness, I've not met a manager who is inclusive as well as compassionate as her. She understood my challenges. She really got it. And she... She, she, um, she really took my appraisals seriously. So my development and my appraisals were absolute priorities. So she would really prepare for my appraisals, which made me really prepare as well, because a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people would think, well, it's not going to change anything. You've got to do your appraisal in June or May or whenever it is. And it's almost like something that you have to sit and quickly do exactly. in 10, 15 minutes and not that much is necessarily sometimes gained from that process. Exactly. And that's how people's views, views are. But this manager, she flipped the view completely on its head and she took my appraisals. I mean, we would go through every single bit of my appraisal and she'll say, right, Ethel, in the next six months, this you know should give me her review or give my own review of how I've done and then we would work out my next six months what am I going to do she started to provide opportunities for me to regain my voice so would be set in really big important meetings and she would ensure that I was either on the agenda to say something for five minutes or if she knew that I had a perspective on what the subject was or the or the discussion was she would say something like, oh, Ethel, I remember we had a conversation a few days ago and you made mention that this was an important area and you you gave two really good points. Um, Do you want to just share them with the group? And she would do things like that. And what she was trying to do was to really 
helped me be comfortable with amplifying my voice, uh, which had been shut down. So I'll never forget her because I think I am where I am today because of her leadership. And so, so to leaders out to other leaders, I just want to say, prioritize, really, really do appraisal in the sense that they're meant to be done because we need to grow our staff. We need to develop our staff. And, um, and that's how you also get really good outputs from staff. If you show that you care about their development, they are going to deliver for our service users as well. And I think a lot of the time you don't always know what opportunities are available, do you? Or what courses you should do or what funding or what projects you could get involved in. And actually by having that senior person facilitate and give you the information to say this project's happening or we're doing this or you can apply I remember my manager saying, when are you going to apply to do the critical care course? And it hadn't even occurred to me that I would be allowed to or that I could or that there would be funding. And by having that, having that encouragement, it does make a big difference, doesn't it? It really does. And I think um, and I think as leaders, that's what we always need to be searching out for opportunities to develop our staff and looking out for those um, learning opportunities or project op- opportunities. And in fact, what my manager did is she ended up create she ended up just developing projects within within the directorate and said, well, Ethel, could you lead on such and such a project or could you do such and such a project uh, because she knew I was passionate about it. And um, and and that really escalated my my development. And have you got any other any further leadership advice outside from what we've just mentioned for anyone that's going into a leadership role or that's interested or that's that's been in one for a while, but is still wanting to develop themselves as a leader further? I cannot I cannot, you know, overemphasize the the power of networking. So. I would say the more you are out there in forums where there's other leaders, the more you're going to see the, you're going to see really good role models out there. You're going to see leaders role modeling true leadership and really good leadership. And that's going to be great. And any opportunity to have conversations with other leaders, any forum, anywhere, is going to be great because then you are you are building your network and um, there's something about for me the more that I've kind of had you know been in forums where there's other leaders I've just created you know really good good connections and they've enabled me in areas that I felt I needed enabling so we've had dialogues about oh you know can you support me with this or do you know where I can find this and it's kind of really just helped helped in that the other thing is I just want to say be compassionate to yourself because uh, there was a point I wasn't I really felt that I was failing myself um, um, especially when I was subjected through the 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 time that I spoke about um, be self-compassionate to look after yourself because you you can't um, your, your staff members are going to do what you do so if you're constantly answering emails until midnight and not having the downtime your team are going to feel that they need to do the same so you're going to have really tired staff coming into work drug errors rising and all other sorts of stress going on so really have a good work-life balance and um, 
look after yourself. And the last thing that I'd say is um, really foster a culture of kindness and respect within your units and uh, compassion amongst your teams. And everybody needs support in one area of, or another, not one size doesn't fit all. So it's really about how do we all listen to each other, be accommodating, but not forget that we've got a task at hand, which is vulnerable people that need us to look after them. And how do we do that collaboratively um, whilst taking care of each other in the process? Thank you, some, some amazing advice there. And have you got any advice for any student nurses at the moment that are currently doing their training? Yeah, I would give I would give advice based on my own experience when I was a student. So the first thing that I would say is uh, go into your placements, for example, with a mindset to learn. Because I remember when I first went to my placements, I would kind of be in a corner waiting for someone to come and tell me, right, Ethel, in the next hour, you must do this. And in the next hour, you must to like plan my day for me. But the wards are usually so busy and it's easy for you to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. So I would say really do a lot of prep in terms of who is your mentor, know who your mentor is, go into your placements, knowing who your mentor is and actually go there with an attitude of learning. So if, for example, you hear in handover, handover that um, one of the staff nurses is going to be dressing a wound, um, then put yourself forward there and there and say, oh, no, can I can I observe you doing that or can I support you in doing that? And you're learning. So you're learning. So always go in with an attitude of learning and always leave your placement with at least two new things that you've learned on that day. And I'd also like to say that um, I found that the cleaners and the domestic staff had a wealth of information that is extremely support, it would really support you in integrating into your new unit or, or, or place of um, your placements. And um, so really, really have spend time to have dialogues with them as part of your induction and I completely then, agree I had a um I, sorry I had a one of the healthcare assistants and a cleaner when I was a third year and it was my kind of second to last placement of the year and I was I was finding it really challenging it was a really stressful area and I remember the cleaner and the HCA pulled me aside and were like Laura you can do this it's okay and they completely set me up and really helped me to to do well on that placement and I think they're people that sometimes we don't necessarily think of as people to go to for help or for learning or that can teach us but their wealth of knowledge and their understanding of the clinical area about what goes on about the different managers and and the care that's given well it's massive isn't it it's so tremendous and you'll find that a lot of them have been there for years yes and and, and they were there when the building was kind of built and literally they, there. <laughs> they know everyone they know all the porters they know all the exactly. x-ray staff they know pharmacy <laughs> so they make them so i would say to students make them your best friends as in like they will give you a lot of information that will help you settle into your placement and then obviously academically you know you Take your work seriously and again, pace yourself and plan your work so that you get the most out of each module. And um, yeah, that's that's advice I'd give to students. My students are going to think I'm paying you. Write your essays early. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. Yeah. This is the thing. I tell you, I mean, every most students most probably will remember this. I remember actually sat in the library until early hours 
of the morning just to make sure I submit and, you know, just doing your essay last minute, it is the worst thing to ever do. So there's something about pacing yourself, just plan ahead. Yeah, you don't need the panic. No one needs the 4am essay stress. It's mm. uh, it's way too much. <laughs> um, so have you got, what are your kind of career aims for the future? What, what are your goals going forward? Um, I would really like to um, be a director of nursing going forward in the future. Um, and Obviously, I know that previously I mentioned that I was chief nurse, but for core services. So I was on a shadow board, exec board, not on the exec board for that role. So I would really one day like to be part of an executive board and a director of nursing. Um, that's my aspiration going forward. Well, thank you so much for, um, for giving me some of your time, Ethel. It's been amazing to hear your advice and your career. And I really look forward to seeing yeah, how you progress. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great speaking to you today. Thank you.